You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell and my guest in this episode is absolutely fantastic. Amantha Imba is all about working smart. Early in the chat you're about to hear, she makes the powerful yet obvious statement, that we spend up to a third of our awake hours at work. So it should be a great experience. Yet, as we all know too well, creating enjoyable, engaging, rewarding workplace experiences for staff is not on the agenda of many organizations. Amantha is on a mission to change that. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Amantha Imba. Amantha Imba, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Good to be here. It's delightful to have you on, Amantha. You have got this wonderful approach to your communicating and the messages that you give through your podcast and your writing and your speaking that is very consistent. How would you best characterize the theme of what you talk about? What is at the the heart of the work that you do? I would say what's at the heart of what I do is it comes back to my roots as an organisational psychologist. Like we spend a third of our waking lives at work as an adult and I just think it's so important that we be as happy and fulfilled during a third of our lives as possible. And so I guess I feel like my mission is to help make that happen for people. What a wonderful mission and a really interesting time for that mission, given the the whole COVID thing that happened last year. And, and we I know it's still around and, of course, we keep on getting spot fires, but it feels like life has kind of returned to normal to a, a large extent in organizations. And a few organizations I know are grappling with what is the new normal and, and how much of what we learned during the COVID period about working flexibly and working from home, should we still honor and acknowledge how much of the old way do we try and get back? It's a really interesting time to be in that space. And as you say, we spend a third of our time at work or in our professional realm, whatever that might be. So we might as well make it enjoyable. But does it boggle your mind when you work with different organizations and different leaders, just how low on the priority that is? for the way organizations are set up and the way leaders lead. Are you still amazed by that or are we seeing a a nice shift? Well, I feel like I've got a really skewed sample because at Inventium, which is the behavioral science consultancy I founded many years ago now, we really only work with organizations that reach out to us. And the kind of organization that reaches out to us or the kind of leader that reaches out to us knows that it's really important to obsess over the employee experience because at the end of the day, like all you've got are your people. Your people are the thing that is responsible for delighting customers and making them want to like engage with your organization. So savvy leaders recognize that and they're really the only types of leaders that I'm fortunate enough to work with. So yeah. You're right, you know. I hadn't thought about it that. I thought you'd have this fabulous view on organizations from the whole range, and I'm sure you do to a certain extent, but I guess that makes sense. The people who reach out to you are already aware. They're aware enough that they are seeking help to work on that very thing of making 
work a more enjoyable experience for their most valuable resource? Yeah, look, I think where I do get the view of the average person is probably through my friends that are working for bad bosses or working for organisations that have toxic cultures, you know, like I, I caught up with a girlfriend of mine on the weekend and she works for a very large corporate and she's recently moved divisions after working in this particular division for many years. And like she just gave her all to this team as the leader of it and they didn't even give her a send-off. They just said, oh, yeah, see you later. And it was just awful. It was completely demoralising for her. I think she was, you know, needless to say, very glad to leave that division, but she still has to interact with those co-workers on on a semi-regular basis. But I just go, that like, where's the humanness in that? Like, that just sounds awful. Yeah. And it's those little moments that reveal so much about the way an organisation thinks and the habits of their leaders and, and what is habitual from an organisation point of view for the way they treat their staff. Look, the way, the direction we're heading in this podcast is I'm going to get Amantha to hit us with her five greatest pieces of wisdom when she starts working with an organization who has bought into this whole concept. I'd like to get Amantha to identify for us the the common, and I hate this cliche, but it, it's pretty useful, lowest hanging pieces of fruit. The five things that are really easy to see, identify, and pick when you walk into an organization that is on the move, that started the journey. So we'll get there and we'll hear all about the kind of strategies that you use to address those five most common things that that leaders and workplaces can fix. But before we get there, I want to talk about Inventium, your organization, as a really interesting case study. I read the paper that you wrote today, very short paper, thank you for that, and it was all about the four-day work week. Now, that is an intoxicating concept. No one listening to this right now would hate that unless they're a controlling <laughs> boss. Tell us, how did you land on that as a great experiment? I'm sure it wasn't the first great experiment that you've done in your organization. I'm sure you're the type of of workplace that walks the talk and on a daily basis behaves the way that you preach to your clients. So tell us how you landed on that as an idea and how did it play out? Yeah, sure. So we are often running experiments on how to provide a better work experience to the team. So this has included doing unlimited paid leave for three and a half years or three years. We run a holacracy, still run a holacracy where no one has a manager per se, you know, look, we we do this thing that we call deal or no deal, which at the like at the end of someone's first three months, we offer them one month's salary to resign, just to, you know, to kind of just get rid of fence sitters. So we tried all sorts of things and for the most part they've been pretty successful. The four-day week came about in a couple of ways. So firstly, it came about in April last year. So in March last year. Inventium's business is largely reliant, was reliant on face-to-face workshops and training programs and keynote speaking and all those sorts of things. So when COVID hit, a large part of our work was cancelled or postponed. And as a result, we had to retrench four staff, which was quite heartbreaking. Like in 13 or 14 years of having Inventium, I've never had to do that. So that was awful. And Four staff then, out of a, a workforce of how many? Uh, we had 12 at the time. So that was 
quite a big deal for us. So we had eight of us that were left in the team and we decided to run our own innovation process that we help our clients with internally. And the challenge that we were trying to work on is essentially how can we make eight great was the challenge that we were trying to solve. So thinking about how can we, you know, really come back from what was a really tough time for the whole team, like losing four members of our little family. And one of the ideas that was brought up was having a four-day week. And it was interesting because on the podcast that I host, How I Work, I'd had Andrew Barnes from Perpetual Guardian on literally like a month or two before this particular workshop that our team was doing, talking about the four-day week. He was kind of, I guess, is like, I guess one of the, the founding people of this idea. And we talked about that. I just sort of made a mental note to go, must revisit this when not in the middle of a global pandemic. But then Mish, my CEO, brought it up in this ideation session. And I thought, oh yeah, why wouldn't we consider that now? And so there was quite a bit of excitement about that idea as a team. There was also trepidation, like how are we going to fit five days work into four? That seems a bit crazy. And we sort of through through a whole process, we decided, yeah, let's give this a go. Let's run a six-month experiment. And I'm happy to talk about the details of that. But in a nutshell, it worked really well. All the metrics that we were looking at improved from productivity to like staff turnover, to engagement, to job satisfaction, to reduction in stress levels, everything, you name it, it all got better. And we we also tracked really well in terms of hitting our financial targets as well. So it's not like we're all happy, but the company died. <laughs> Everything went very well. And so we decided you hit your to financial make it- targets two we months did. ahead of schedule. That is correct. Yes. Yes. So um, in a we, global pandemic, in a global pandemic. Yes. Quite the feat. So we decided to keep it as a permanent fixture. So now we're nearly one year into doing the four day week. Now, were you more open to this as the founder of the organization? Because in some part of your brain, you were thinking, well, maybe we won't have that much work to do this year and maybe this will work out okay as an experiment. Was there any of that going on? No, because we we were like, I mean, there was work to do. So no. And, and like, we wouldn't try something if it wasn't sustainable. So yeah, no, so that was not going on in the back of my mind. <laughs> So what does it look like? Now, there's the, the old concept, that I think it's called the Portrayo principle, where we expand work to fill the space. I might have mixed up my principles there, but I'm pretty sure Parkinson's I'm right. Law. Parkinson's oh, law. Parkinson's law. Yes. You're absolutely mm. right. Mm. Where we expand the work just to fill the time we've given, which is why when we rock into a half-hour meeting or a one-hour meeting, everyone kind of waffles at the beginning and waffles at the end because there's this thing in their brain that says, I've just got to fill the time. I've got to fill the space, which is not true at all, of course, we could just leave early. So are you just working on the principle then that prior to this experiment, people weren't working at capacity? They were kind of filling the space, filling the time that they had with the work that they had. Is, is that at the heart of why it worked? Mm, that is the hypothesis behind why the four-day week can actually work for organisations. And that was certainly the thing that made Andrew Barnes want to try it. I think he did an eight-week experiment, a six or eight-week experiment at Perpetual Guardian to begin with. So that's absolutely right. And I, you know, I'm I'm generally, I'm very optimistic, ridiculously optimistic. So I'm like, sure, we could make this work. But I mean, we were starting, like the bar was high in terms of where we were starting from. We, a large part of our business is we train organizations and people in how to be more productive. And we already apply 
so many of those principles ourselves. So we are a highly productive, high-performing team. But then I go, well, look, there's room for improvement. You know, like if I feel like I can improve my own productivity, then, you know, everyone in the team can. And I think we found that that was absolutely possible. We'll get to the kind of benefits that you noticed or were reported to you by your staff later, because that's the really interesting thing, what it means for the human beings who work in your organization. That's the most interesting thing. But I'd love to know the nitty gritty of how you got there. I'd love to know what did you expect as as the boss to see when you agreed to go through this experiment? What did you expect to see from your staff rushing through work or just being super efficient or I'm fascinated to know what you were imagining. And then what was the reality? What were some of the changes that people had to make to fit four days worth of work in, no, five days worth of work into four? Yeah, it's funny the question of what did I expect to see because I don't actually see people work because we are now a remote first company. So we don't all work in the office together. And so I don't really see people work, but I do see outputs. And also I don't manage anyone in the team. And so I'm not actually super close to what people are doing day to day. I'm just in amongst the team collaborating on different projects and also working solo on some projects. So so that's kind of it's a funny question, but I guess in terms of what what I would chat about with people and what I, you know, felt was going on is that certainly their like collaboration didn't slow down. We did actually track that because we were a little bit worried that You know, if everyone's just so focused on efficiency, are they just not going to want to talk to anyone? That wasn't the case. What was really cool is is hearing about what people did when they took, we we called the initiative gift of the fifth, I should add, and that was very deliberate. So we agreed through designing this process that Friday, we'd all take Friday off. Much easier if we all take the same day off so that it doesn't cut into collaboration time and make things a little bit tricky in terms of like scheduling all team meetings and also gift of the fifth. So the fifth day is Friday, but also we wanted people to not take it for granted. I think it's so easy when you put in place staff benefits that they're exciting to begin with and then they just get taken for granted. It's like, you know, if you're lucky enough to move to like a house or an apartment that has an amazing view. I remember when I lived in Sydney for a few years, I lived in this apartment in Glebe that was up high and it had the most amazing view of the harbour. But several months into living in that apartment, I was just aware of just taking that view for granted. And I think the same thing can happen with staff benefits. And it certainly happened with unlimited paid leave, a great benefit, but definitely taken for granted, you know, three years in. So just calling it a gift. It's like, we're giving you the gift of time. If you can use your time wisely on the four days that you are working, you'll still be paid for five, but please use those four days really wisely. So what, what what we talk about in our Monday team meeting is how people had used the gift of the fifth, which was super cool. People learnt new skills, pursued hobbies that they hadn't had time to pursue, started new like non-work projects. So it was, you know, it was really quite heartwarming hearing this stuff and and going, wow, as a founder of an organization, I'm like creating a really great workplace but also giving people the space and the time to pursue these other really rich, meaningful things. So I'm not sure if that's answered your question, but that's kind of some of the stuff I noticed. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. 
You've answered the next part of the question as well, the impact on the humans, because that's what this is all about. And and I love the fact that you started Monday by talking about what did you do on your fifth, the the gift day. That's a that's a really nice element to it. Are there any organizations you can think of or any structures, any setups, any industries where this wouldn't work, where this idea has its limitations? Look, I think it's very dependent on the relationship between managers and staff. There has to be a high level of trust and you have to have managers that think in terms of outputs, in terms of instead of inputs. Managers that are still a bit old school and like think about hours worked and, you know, now that a lot of us are back in the office part of the time, a kind of judging staff that maybe rock up a little bit late or leave a little bit early, but are not actually judging their work by the output, what's actually been achieved. I think it's a hard concept to get your head around. presenteeism. Exactly. Yeah. So if you've kind of got managers that are all about that, I don't think it's going to work that well unless there's a mindset shift. So you think an organization, and yours clearly fit this category, an organization has to be at a certain level of maturity in the way it operates, in the way it values its staff as human beings in order to do this. That makes perfect sense. Hey, interesting to note, because one of the other things you're famous for is unlimited leave. And I had read that about you before. You said that you trialed that for three years and you even commented that by the end it was taken for granted. I'd love to hear about that. But first tell me, does the Gift of the Fifth program have a time limit for the same reason? So the Gift of the Fifth replaced unlimited leave. So we no longer have unlimited paid leave. And look, in terms of Gift of the Fifth, it just goes on until something happens that makes us rethink it. So certainly I think we've got, um, and, and this is more something that Mish, our CEO, thinks about. What are the tripwires that would make us just go, hang on, let's just review whether this is working. Funnily enough, like whether we hit our company goals is not necessarily a tripwire because we recognize there can be confounding variables that can impact that. But it's, I guess it's not something that we take for granted, but there's no kind of, there's no end date in sight. Fabulous. Now, all that is wonderful. It's nice to hear that your organization is living its values in in the the way that you work internally, not just the things that you talk to clients about. It's a wonderful story. Now, let's turn to the real gold here, the stuff that our listeners will be able to take away and maybe notice in their own workplace as leaders. When you start working with an organization, whether it's big or small, what are some of the Let's go with five of the most common things that you're likely to come into the organization and notice in your discovery phase. What are the, the low hanging, what is the low hanging fruit and how do we address it? And I'll take your lead on how you want to approach this. If you want to go through them one by one, that'd be great. Then I'm fascinated to hear these because I think we'll all recognize them. This might be one thing or it might be three things. So I'll leave that decision up to you. But One of the things that we look at when we're reviewing an organization, and we use this framework with the uh, judging and assessment work that we do with the financial review on our best places to work list, is according to self-determination theory, there are three factors that are really going to drive people's motivation at work. So the first thing is autonomy. So do people feel like they've got a sense of control or freedom over when, where, and how they work? 
And obviously flexibility has become a lot greater in most organizations thanks to COVID, but you know, still micromanagement exists and that's a really bad thing for motivation. So autonomy is one thing that we look at. We also look at mastery. So are people given the opportunity to master new skills and are they set projects that really challenge them and stretch them in a good way? And thirdly, we look at connections. So are there kind of opportunities for people to have really like high quality connections as as Professor Jane Dutton would talk about this in the context of, you know, do people feel genuinely connected to the people that they work with? So those three things are the main drivers of motivation at work. So we look for those three. All right, well, I'm going to make this hard for you and say that's a, that's wonderful, but it's one. That's the self-determination theory idea, the autonomy, when, where, and how we work, mastery, and connections. So there's one amongst the first things that, that you pay attention to when you work into an organization. Wonderful, makes sense. Tell me more. So something else that we think about is have people actually been trained to use their time wisely and do really deep focused work in the age of digital distraction? And the answer at most organizations is no. Like people might be trained in, you know, things like presentation skills or sales skills or communication skills. But at the end of the day, like if you're a knowledge worker or a desk bound worker, like you are dealing with all these things that are competing for your attention, mostly in the form of digital distractions like email and Slack messages and all those sorts of things. And the average the average worker does a just check of their email or instant messenger program every six minutes. And God knows how anyone is doing deep focused work these days. And so a large part of what we do is we explore how well are people actually working and train people to be able to do deep focused work and achieve a whole lot more with the time that we have allocated for work. You know, that's such a fantastically powerful one because you've just some, you've just identified something that we all put up with through in the day, that digital distraction. And you so rarely hear about an organization that has addressed that front on as a, a development thing, skills that we need to learn. That's a really fabulous one. Now, at a guess, when you go into an organization – what percentage of them have even thought about that as a thing that they could address at, at a high level? Very, very few. And again, like I would say, our sample is skewed because we don't go out and try to find business. The only organizations that we work with at Inventium are companies that come to us and have an appetite for improvement and, you know, uh, I guess receiving the sort of help that we give. There's a real openness about it. And They've never undergone training like it. And, and I think that's why we get really good results. Like in a five-week period, we'd typically get like a 20 to 25% improvement in productivity. And what's also really interesting is that job satisfaction will increase by about the same amount. So just by changing how we go about our day-to-day job, like not actually changing our job, but just changing how we approach it, we actually approach increases it. how satisfied we are with it, which I think is like really cool. I'm really taken with this one. And if you'll just indulge me for a moment, what are some of the core principles of that? People who are office workers sitting at their desk largely, where, you know, in and out of meetings, say half the time or a third of the time, but a lot of time at their desk with just stuff to do. And, and often the, the more they're able to use their noggin, the better the outcomes are. So what are the principles that you teach people to, for managing that digital distraction? For digital distraction, and that is 
that sort of one week of the five-week programs, uh, like, look, there are some just some hygiene factors there, like in terms of switch off all notifications, turn everything on do not disturb, but also communicate to people why you are doing that. Like explain to them the difference between, you know, like as a knowledge worker, you can engage in two types of work. There's deep focused work that requires intense concentration and you can't do it properly if you're being distracted all the time. And then there's shallow work, which is less like less cognitively demanding work. And and for listeners that want to delve deeper, read Deep Work by um, Cal Newport. He's a professor at Georgetown University in computer science and coined coined the terms and is just really brilliant. So think about, distinguish between those two types of work, educate your fellow co-workers about those two types of work and explain that when you're not contactable, it's because you're trying to do deep focused work. So that would be one of the fundamental things, you know, as well as just which off notifications. Like it is absolutely crazy people that try to do work at their computer and have their email open and Slack open and MS Teams open and like it's What's mental. that for your friends? Mm. It is amazing. And everyone who's listening to this right now, unless you're someone who has read Cal's book or does, done one of Amantha's wonderful development programs, you will recognize that that behavior of knowing that you've got deep work to do. And deep work is often hard. It often takes a lot of your energy. And there's something in you that just when you see a pop, something pop up, whether it's an email or a message or whatever it might be, you're kind of like, oh, awesome. Here's an excuse to distract myself from this really hard thing that I'm trying to do. And we all know that that hard thing is far more satisfying than anything that's going to pop up in your email. But we do it. And I recognize that behavior in myself. Look, I am going to read that book, Amantha. That is a great recommendation. Cal Newport's Deep Work. Tell me what is number three on your low-hanging fruit? Well, I think something that can be really useful for people to think about is to work to their chronotype. So for listeners that haven't heard of what a chronotype is, it's a big area of research by psychologists. And it basically refers to over a 24-hour period where our peaks and troughs are in terms of energy and alertness. And so broadly speaking, there are three types of chronotypes. They're what chronotype researchers call larks. So these are stereotypical morning people that would wake at 5 or 5.30 without an alarm and they're at their mental peak. So typically between sort of about 7 to 10 a.m., then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got owls. It's about one in five people who are, are night people. They do their best work in the evening when most offices are shut. And then you've got middle birds, everyone else. It's kind of like a, a standard distribution or normal distribution. And middle birds run on the same schedule as a lark, just delayed by a couple of hours. So they're going to do their best work between about nine to 12 in the morning. And so something that organizations should really be thinking about doing, particularly in the context of autonomy and giving staff autonomy to work in the way that best suits them, is to encourage staff to assess their chronotype and to align their work schedule to their chronotype. So if you've got a lot of larks on your team, let them start work at six or seven in the morning and let them shut shut down their computer at two or three in the afternoon because that's how you're going to get the best out of them. Stop trying to fit everyone into the nine to five mold. So that's my third thing for people to think about. Very good. This is 
the definition of gold nuggets. We talk about gold nuggets on this podcast. They are fabulous. <laughs> cool. Number four is obsess over meetings and how well they are being run. So I think it's really interesting to ask people, firstly, how much time do they spend in meetings? And at the moment where uh, we're in the middle of running this program at Inventium with a bunch of about 30, 30 people managers and it's for people managers that want to get better at leading hybrid teams. And we had a session about meetings this morning for this program and we asked them like, on average, how many hours per week you're spending in meetings? And they were saying between about 20 to 30 hours. So that's like half to three quarters of your working like hours if you're doing a 40-hour week, which is kind of mental. And what we know is that our satisfaction with meetings accounts for 15% of how satisfied we are with our job overall. Like, you know, because it's funny, because like we sort of take it for granted that Everyone hates meetings. Everyone bitches and moans about meetings. Everyone is like, oh, I've got back-to-back meetings today. Oh, I've had meetings all day. I have to do my work at night. Like everyone sort of does that as if it's just, that's just how it has to be. But it's like, no, no, no. Firstly, it doesn't have to be that way. And secondly, the fact that you're complaining about meetings and just assume that meetings have to be bad, that is having a really big impact on how happy you are at work overall. Like that's terrible. It is having a big impact. Yeah. yeah. So a couple of tips for meetings. So we mentioned Parkinson's law earlier, which is that work will expand to fill the time available for its completion. And this is true of meetings. So if you are like most people and you're defaulting to 30 or 60 minute meetings, which is the majority of people, and that's just because that's how our electronic calendars are structured and it's how we're used to chunking our days. If you've allocated 60 minutes for a meeting, Chances are, according to Parkinson's law, the meeting will take 60 minutes, whether it should or not. So instead of defaulting to 30 or 60 minutes, I would recommend that people ask themselves instead, how much time does this meeting deserve? And so by asking yourself, how much time does this meeting deserve? You will probably save a whole bunch of time because some meetings, some issues that you're discussing in a meeting only deserve 10 minutes. Some deserve 15 minutes. Some do deserve the full hour. But ask yourself, how much time does this meeting deserve instead of defaulting to 30 or 60-minute meetings? When you talk to an organization about this, no one is surprised to hear it. Everyone can relate to it. Everyone who's listening is sitting there nodding. How much pushback do you get from any parts of the organization about trying to shave off time from meetings and obsess over their quality, whether that be an agenda that's distributed before the meeting, a, a really firm set of objectives, and then, of course, the proposed outputs from a meeting. How much pushback do you get when you try and reshape meetings in an organization? Does everyone embrace you? They do. Like everyone that is involved in our programs definitely does. I think where the challenge comes is trying to shift an entire organization to that way of being. So we generally find, look, the more people we can touch, so to speak, in an organization, the easier it is to create change. But no, I mean, with the with the people that we're working with directly, no one has said, no, let's just keep our meetings really long and inefficient. I prefer it that way. No one says it. Hey, in your paper about the gift of the fifth, you talked about how important it was that your CEO took Friday off. Your CEO modeled that to the staff and you suspect that if she didn't do that, especially at the very beginning of the program, 
a lot of people wouldn't have been comfortable doing that. I've, I imagine that's totally true, but I feel really strongly that that's probably the case for meetings as well. I don't know if you've ever noticed in organizations, but people at all levels mimic the behavior of their senior person when it comes to meetings. If their senior person is really efficient and keeps on time and makes a point of arriving at time to meeting, starting meetings on time, despite the fact that no one's there or not everyone's there, then that's what people around them will mimic. But on the other side of the coin, if leaders turn up late to meetings because they've had a very important high-powered meeting beforehand, they sit on their phone in a meeting talking to someone else, all of those kind of terrible toxic meeting behaviors, they, they allow meetings to go terribly over time. If that's what senior people in the organization do, that's what everyone around them will do. So is hitting the seniors in any organization with these new concepts, especially that obsess over meetings thing, is that one of the keys to the way that you work? Yeah, it's so important. Like, I think for change to happen, like around the norms that there are, like the working norms, the productivity norms, it's really difficult if it doesn't come from the top. It is hard for change to happen that way. It's certainly possible and we've seen it happen, but it's so much easier when it's been led from the top. No doubt. All right. Lucky last, Samantha. What is number five? What is number five? So, Again, like something I think is a really useful concept to think about, particularly when it comes to teamwork, is like when we get like new software or a new gadget or like a new appliance in our kitchen or something like that, it comes with an operating manual or an instruction manual in terms of how to use it. But when we work with people, I mean, I think we can agree that people are vastly more complex than say, a phone or a microwave or a dishwasher, there's a lot more things going on. Yet we don't get a manual when we start working with someone new. So something that we've been doing with a lot of our clients is helping them helping them create what, what we refer to as a one-page operating manual. So, you know, again, with this leading hybrid teams program that I mentioned before, something that we're getting all the people managers in that program to do is we're giving them a template which asks them, several questions for an individual to answer about how they work. What are their strengths? How does someone bring them out? What are their weaknesses? How does someone bring out those? Like, what are their peeve points? What are the things that surprise people about them? So basically asking them a series of pointed questions that will allow them to fast track getting to know other people. And the feedback that we've received with that one page operating manual is that people that have worked together for several years, are learning things about each other that they did not know previously. Um, you know, and, and it's something that we did at Inventium as well. Like whenever we're, you know, recommending a strategy for one of our clients, like our kind of MO, if you like, is, you know, everything we do is research or science-based, but then we also test it on ourselves. And so we went through that process as a team and like that was super useful. Even just knowing someone's peeve points, like for me, for example, I just, I hate it when meetings start late. Like I know most people don't like it, but I actively hate it. And I feel absolutely terrible if I'm ever even one minute late to a meeting because I find it so disrespectful. And what's really sad is that the average meeting in an organization starts five minutes late. Like, I think that's sort of fair to say. I haven't seen research, but just anecdotally. And if we think about a 60 minute meeting starting five minutes late, that's 8% wastage. Like 
where else do you just tolerate 8% wastage in an organization without doing something about it? So that is a peeve point for me. So by my team knowing that, they're like, I'm never going to be late for a meeting with Amantha. So that is that is my final thing. They are all fantastic, Amantha. Look, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Team Guru podcast. My pleasure. And that was Amantha Imba. I loved it. She makes so much sense. It's not rocket science. It's just that it's largely ignored by many of the places we work. I loved her top five tips, the things she looks out for when she starts working for an organization. Number one is related to self-determination theory, having autonomy, that is the when, where, and why of how we work, encouraging and enabling mastery and connections, genuine positive relationships with our colleagues. Number two is being trained to use time wisely. Chief among that for many of us is managing digital distractions. Number three is work to your chronotype. Are you an early morning lark, a late night owl, or among the majority of middle birds? Whichever way it is, know your type and use your peaks and troughs to your advantage. Number four is obsess over meetings. We all hear this one. Get awesome at running good meetings. And number five, that one-page human operating manual. Key questions about how an individual works. It fast-tracks relationship building and can even unearth some unknowns among long-term colleagues. As always, I'll share these nuggets of gold along with the rest of the lessons I took from my conversation with Amantha on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.